before. Thank you for being here to hear the Word of God, to participate in the activity of worship, of a wonderful and meaningful time for God's people to come together. If you have your Bibles handy, I would encourage you to go ahead and turn to uh, the Gospel of Luke chapter 1, though we certainly will be making numerous references to other scriptures pertaining to the text today. Uh, we'll be looking beginning in verse 26. We saw the unfolding of the Gospel of Luke in preparation for the coming of the Messiah, how God worked so miraculously in sending an angel to the priest Zacharias and announcing to him that his prayers have been answered. And in that, his wife Elizabeth, who's been barren and they're both grown up in age, was going to conceive a child, not just any child. He would be the forerunner of the coming Messiah. We know him as John the Baptist, the last of the Old Testament expressions of prophets if you would and so this in and of itself was a, a profound announcement and certainly impacted the lives of Zacharias and Elizabeth and so we left off there but we're going to be picking up now as we're moving towards what we traditionally know as the Christmas story and uh, we'll be weaving together some aspects of other gospels pertaining to the events of that first uh, Christmas the birth of the Messiah Jesus Christ I thought it was interesting, I, got a, um, I picked up an email from uh, Vernon Brady, who's with the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association. Some of you may have gotten it as well. But in that email, he said, uh, people will think more about Christmas over the next 36 days than for the whole entire rest of the year. So, you know, the observance of Christmas uh, has certainly changed over the years since I was a little boy, as I think about it. Uh, I think about the fact that you know, we went from being able to go around publicly and public leaders and, and people in retails, uh, uh, places being able to say Merry Christmas uh, to now saying Happy Holidays. I don't know about you, I still return with Merry Christmas because that works for me. But, uh, and I'm proud to be able to say that and I don't mind elaborating upon it for anybody that kind of looks quizzical. But anyway, so we went from Merry Christmas to Happy Holidays and Lord of Mercy on the television. I've been hearing this expression over and over, Happy Honda Days. So I don't know where Christmas is getting lost in the shuffle. Now, if you have a Honda, that's great. It's a good car. But uh, please don't confuse that with the ultimate and, and, and true meaning of Christmas. Dr. John MacArthur in his commentary on the, Luke, on the Gospel of Luke in talking about this very subject said Christmas is arguably the most widely celebrated of all the world's holidays involving more people and nations than any other and I think we'd all agree but he says at the same time it is the most misunderstood of all the major holidays as we think about Christmas folks it's, it's a whole lot more than a charming story that warms the hearts of people. It's more than just a time of celebrating a single event in history as a fairy tale would, would be. You know, Christmas is, is, is much more than any of the other holidays in that we're not celebrating uh, the works of man, the accomplishments of man. Because when we think about Christmas, we are remembering and we are rejoicing that the sovereign, all-powerful, holy, uh, loving God of the universe who created us in His image has a plan. 
And he has a divine design in which the outcome will be the redemption of, of, of humanity, the salvation of, of, of lost and wretched sinners like ourselves. And so it's a process over time that, that even predates history. And so Christmas is a part of that. Christmas is one of the highlights of this great and glorious divine design of God. And so before we jump right into chapter 1, verse 26 of Luke's gospel, with the backdrop of what I just said about Christmas being more than just the celebration of one single event. Oh, make no mistake about it. When we think about Christmas, we are celebrating the, one of the grandest of all the historical occurrences in the whole history of mankind. But don't see it as, as a separated and isolated incident in and of itself. It wasn't God's knee-jerk reaction or just a second thought that God says, well, I think it'd be neat to just send my son down there to be born. It has a, a, a plethora of scripture backing up that, like I said, even goes beyond history itself. I, I would go back to the Gospel of John, in fact, and let you see that this design, this plan of redemption that God is instituting and working out and is still in the process of fulfilling even goes back beyond. Because when you think about Jesus, folks, Jesus' creation or his, his, his uh, coming into being, if you will, uh, predates 2,000 years ago by, by far. In John's gospel, he begins his gospel in verse 1 of chapter 1. He says, in the beginning was the word, logos. That's Christ. That's Jesus, the second person of the Holy Trinity. In the beginning was the word. In other words, when the beginning began, when creation took place, when history of the world began, Jesus was already here. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God. And we know that God is eternal. He's, he's Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. There's no beginning, there's no end of God. And the Word was with God, but more profoundly, John goes on in that verse to say, and the Word, speaking of Jesus Christ, was God. So Christmas is not the beginning of Jesus. It's the introduction of the second person of the Holy Trinity into the world. Make no mistakes about it. This precious, innocent baby born in Bethlehem and wrapped in, in, in swaddling clothes and laid in a manger, born of a virgin. Listen, his beginning has no beginning. He will never end. He is eternal. You know, speaking of the Gospel of John, Jesus in the Gospel of John made certain profound statements about himself that would, I think, solidify in the minds of all people who truly believe in the, in the teachings of the Scripture. Jesus made seven profound I am statements. And don't just jump over and look over that expression I am because if you know your Old Testament, you know that that is one of the proper nouns or proper names of God, Yahweh, he is the I am. That's who, how he introduced himself to Moses. He says, I am the Alpha and Omega, the, the beginning and the end. And when Jesus made reference to himself and he says, I am, he's in essence saying, I am Yahweh. And 
These are the things Jesus said. For instance, in John's Gospel, chapter 6, verse 35, Jesus says, I am the bread of life, and he who believes in me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. In chapter 8, if you go on over in John's Gospel, I know we're supposed to be in Luke, but these help us to appreciate. In John's Gospel, chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus spoke to them and said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness but have the light of life. Folks, Jesus is telling the people this is why you need God. Because I will feed you spiritually. I will show you the way in your spiritual darkness. He says, I am the light. Chapter 10, verse 7. Jesus continues with these wonderful I am statements. In chapter 10, verse 7, Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. In verse 9, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. And so Jesus describes himself as, as that door. In chapter 11 of John's gospel, in verse 25, Jesus says, and he's speaking to Martha, and you know this incident where their brother Lazarus had passed away, and Jesus is there to comfort them. And Jesus said in, in John's Gospel, chapter 11, verse 25, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. Jesus, all through this, is making very profound, very pointed, specific spe statements about himself. He's not a delegate of God. He's not a representative of God. He's saying, I am. When you see me, understand you are seeing Yahweh, God. And probably one of the most noted times when Jesus used the I am statement, and I'm sure it got him in a lot of hot water, if you can use that expression with the, the God of the universe. But in John's Gospel, chapter 8, in verse 58, he had been going back and forth in this, this discussion or argument, if you will, with the Jewish leaders. And they were trying to discredit him. And they were saying as much as he was illegitimate. And he would talk about them and say, you don't even know God. And they're saying, who do you think you are? He said, you know, you calling God your father. He, and the Jewish leader says, well, Abraham is our father. And, and, and Jesus says, you don't even know Abraham. You, you claim to, but you don't. Then they return around in that chapter 8 and they say, well, well, we only have one father and he is God. And Jesus says, you don't even know God. In verse 47, he says, he who has a, hears the word of God is of God. If you're not, he says, you don't hear the word of God because you're not even, you don't even know God. Don't claim him as your father. And so in verse and, and, and like I said, they were saying that Abraham was their father. In verse 58, Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now that may not be a significant statement to you and me. It may not rouse anybody in this present day culture. But for someone to make that statement, they were in essence, when Jesus says... Even before Abraham, I existed. 
So you understand the baby that we celebrate at Christmas that was born of Mary and in, in, in that manger in, Beth, in Bethlehem, he was a part of God's divine design that predated even the history of man. Jesus was conceived before, the thought of Jesus was even conceived before the creation of the world. Jesus was before anything was created. You said, we're preacher. How do you, how do you reckon that? In the beginning, in chapter 1 of Genesis, you may recall when God is being created. Now, another name for God is used in Genesis chapter 1. It's the name Elohim. Which is a general term that refers to deity, but in this case refers specifically to the God of creation. But in Genesis chapter 26, uh, Genesis chapter 1, we know that in verse 26, when God is speaking about the creation of man, God says, let us, and he's speaking plural. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish in the sea. And he goes, oh no. So here we see that Elohim, God, the God of the Bible, the God of the, the Jews, the, the God that we worship, is, is more than one person. And so Jesus, in essence, is speaking at this point as a part of the Holy Trinity. And so Jesus is eternal. He predates all of humanity and history. But also in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15. You remember last time we were talking about God's promise to humanity. Even at that dark and, and, and dismal moment in the history of humanity. When man and woman had committed sin. Disobeyed God. And in Genesis chapter 3, as God is pronouncing the curse upon humanity, upon the man, upon the woman, but he, in pronouncing the curse upon Satan, upon the spiritual serpent there after the fall of mankind, Satan having tempted Adam and Eve, you remember in Genesis 3.15, God says, and remember, Jesus is speaking. When any time it says God is speaking, the Trinity is speaking. So he's almost saying of himself. But, but he says to the serpent, and I will put enmity between you and the woman. That's okay. We can accept that because most women don't like snakes. There's very few that like to handle snakes that I've seen. In fact, I'm not too crazy about them myself. That's not such a profound, but what he says next gives us a glimpse of God's divine design. He wasn't giving up on humanity. Sure, they had fallen into sin. Sure, they were under the curse of, of sin. Sure, they would bear the consequences of sin. But God was in essence saying to humanity, Adam and Eve and all the descendants of Adam and Eve thereafter, he says, and he says I will... Put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and then her seed. And the word seed in my translation is capitalized referring to divinity. And folks, here we have the first reference to God's divine design in history. 
God is saying, yes, you have sinned. Yes, you are under the curse of sin. But I'm not casting you aside forever. I'm not done with you because I have a plan and it involves what amounts to in this word when it talks about her seed, which is an unnatural birth because normally the seed is that given by the man. So here's the first implication in the scripture that the Messiah would be one who is born of a virgin. Minus the seed of a human man, but of the woman. And we'll see that played out as we continue to look. And God goes on to say to Satan, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. There would be this constant altercation between Satan and the Messiah. So we see the procession of God's divine design all through history. This, this, this wonderful divine plan that God has that will be celebrated at one of the pinnacle moments in history, and that is the birth of Christ. We see this plan being worked through. It's conceived before the creation of the world. The divine design of God is also confirmed through the inspired words of prophets. God didn't just say what he said in Genesis 3.15 and then there's dead silence until Luke comes along. Oh no, God is continually making reference to his plan in which he is bringing forth a Messiah to, to, to bring salvation to mankind. We've been studying through the Old Testament, Abraham and Isaac and the trickster Jacob. And, and, and you know, we're finding out that Jacob is, is, is having all these sons born to him through his two wives. And in Genesis chapter 49, we're told in the scriptures that Jacob is speaking to each of his sons in a time of blessing, telling them what lie ahead, lies ahead for them. And it's interesting, in chapter 49 of Genesis, in verse 8 through 12, Jacob prophesies to, to, about his son Judah. And he says, Judah, unlike any of your brothers, you will have preeminence as a tribe. Your descendants will have preeminence as a tribe. And in fact, one will come from your lineage, from the tribe of Judah, Judah, who will sit on the throne forever. He will hold the scepter, if you will, to rule over the world forever. And of course, he's speaking of Jesus Christ. And so in the Old Testament, we see reference to the, what we call the Lion of Judah. And we see that revisited again in Revelation chapter 5, verse 5. You'll find reference there to Jesus Christ there at the throne of God. The, the, the perfect Lamb of God having been slain and given his life for the sins of mankind. And he's the one who takes the scroll uh, to the title of the world. He's referred to as the Lion of Judah. So even back in the days of Jacob, you will, if you will, God made reference to his divine design. And in Deuteronomy chapter 18 verse 15 G, uh, Moses is talking to the people of Israel now remember this is about about 1400 years before Jesus comes on the scene and Moses is saying God is going to raise up a prophet a supreme prophet he will be greater than me he'll be greater than any prophet that comes forth he's speaking of Jesus 
in the psalm psalm chapter 2 verse 6 through 9 the psalmist and this is about a thousand years before jesus comes on the scene even a thousand years before that the psalmist is talking about one who would sit on the throne and be the ruler of all of humanity one day speaking of the messiah and of course david as we saw in psalm 132 in our worship god talking about the one who would be uh from his uh, tribe uh, from his lineage speaking of the descendant of David who would sit on the throne and rule forever and, that, and, and so we see the word of God continually making reference to that even in the prophet Isaiah as we've seen through the messages brought to us by the, the preaching team in Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14 we see where the prophet Isaiah spoke of that sign that God would give that there would be a virgin who would give birth to a child an unheard of Occurrence, And yet God says this is a sign that this is the Messiah. And that occurred about 700, 750 years before the birth of Christ. So you see, leading up to this monumental event of the birth of Jesus Christ, all through the word of God, God is continually reminding his people that he has a design of salvation intended for mankind. That great prophet of old, Daniel. In Daniel chapter 9, verse 25, God gives him a vision. And in that vision, he, he shows Daniel. You can go back and read it in Daniel 9, verse 25 through 26. This is about 530 years before Jesus shows up. Daniel is given a vision by God. And in that vision or revelation, he sees the, the Messiah. And, and, and Daniel is given almost a precise time through, through the weeks of years of prophecy. God almost pinpoints for him the exact time when the Messiah will show up and it'll be the time period that Luke is writing in the gospel. He's saying this Messiah will rise up in your midst. So God continues to speak. And in that Old Testament minor prophet of Micah chapter 5 verse 2. God again speaks. He not only tells us when the Messiah is coming, he also tells us where the Messiah will be born because Micah speaks there in Micah chapter 5 of the little town of Bethlehem, that insignificant little town, which was the birthplace of David, King David, being the birthplace of the Messiah. So you see the procession of God's divine design from the very predating history. Even before God had in his mind that Christmas would occur. Not as one single event to be separated from the whole plan. But as one pinnacle event that we would celebrate the actuality of the Son of God coming into the world. Now we go back to Luke's gospel. You said, finally, let's look and see what God is up to. Beginning in verse uh, 26 of chapter 1. Well, we looked at the procession of God's divine design. Now let's take a few moments as we see this beautiful story unfold in what I call the presentation of God's divine design. Let's see how God begins to make this happen. First of all, I want you to see the precision of God's plan. It wasn't anything random about what God did uh, 2,000 years ago. It was all according to plan, in fulfillment of prophecy, and God knew exactly he wasn't going looking at a globe and saying, I think he'll be born here. Chicago, what is that? No. <laughs> no. Now in the sixth month, and that's the, speaking of the pregnancy of Elizabeth. 
You may recall, as we closed out in the previous message, that in verse 24, it says, After those days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and she hid herself five months. It's like God is almost saying, Okay, Elizabeth, you want privacy? I'll give you privacy. Five months. He waited six months. And now, it says in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel, and of course we've seen him in the previous uh, portion of chapter 1 as he confronted Zechariah. Gabriel was sent by God to a city, and, and commentaries and scholars tell us to use the term city as a stretch for, you know, uh, the, the town of uh, Nazareth. It'd be like saying Wahlberg is a city, you know. Let's say village, because really it was an insignificant little village in the region of Galilee. So God sent Gabriel to a town, a village, Nazareth, as, as we see, in the region of Galilee. And Galilee, through the Old Testament, really was considered more a region of Gentiles than it was of the Jews, because it was referred to as Galilee of the Gentiles. And that's important. Remember, Luke is writing primarily to a Gentile congregation. They'd be very interested. Are the Gentiles important in God's plan of redemption, his great divine design? And so here it is to this town that God sends his angel, Gabriel, who is his messenger. So um, in verse 27, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph. Of the house of David. This fulfills the Davidic covenant. And, um, and fulfills the teachings of the prophets. That the Messiah would come from the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. God knew exactly when he was sending uh, his angel to make the announcement. And, and he knew exactly where his Messiah would be born. He knew exactly the players in this divine design. He didn't just single out or just pick randomly by chance anyone that may have just been eligible at the time. He chose those that he had specifically before they were born. He knew he would be sending his Messiah to be born of a virgin. You'll notice that Luke in verse 27 uses the word virgin twice. As if to stress the point that Mary was indeed literally, biologically, ceremonially, a virgin should never had sexual relationships with a man. This is not the term that sometimes is used of a young woman, as Bible critics will sometimes try to say, oh no, she wasn't really a virgin, because a virgin birth is impossible. But there's a Hebrew word that means, need, means young woman. But you understand, this is not the word that is used in the New Testament. This is not the word that is used in the Septuagint. This is a word that, that specifically describes a young woman who has not had sexual relationships with a man. She is a virgin in every sense of the word. And so that was important. Luke wanted to make sure that that was stressed and that she was betrothed to, which is a legal um, a relationship between a man and a woman just like a marriage is except there was a waiting time and so we know that this is the time God has the specific location that he has the exact time everything is going exactly according to time in the sixth month the angel shows up there with Mary and look at the irony of God's plan as I mentioned, the little town of Nazareth. You may recall in the Gospel of John, and I, I kind of like this uh, sarcasm that uh, 
when Philip goes to find Nathaniel, and Philip has discovered Jesus, or, or, or he's, he's, he's discovered Jesus, and, and, and so therefore uh, he's excited. And so he goes to Nathaniel there in John chapter 1, um, and he's telling him he's excited. He says, you know, we, we have found the one who we think is the Messiah. And there in John chapter 1, verse 45, Nathaniel says, wait a minute, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said, yeah, hey, come quick. We found who we think is the Messiah, is Jesus of Nazareth. And Nathaniel very sarcastically says, wait a minute, can anything good come out of Nazareth? So, so Nazareth wasn't a town of great reputation. Nor could you say a woman by the name of Mary, a young teenage girl who didn't come from a prominent family, had no social acclaims that we know of, married to a man who was not a, a, a very rich man, I would guess. He was not a very prominent man. In fact, in the Gospel of Matthew, we find out that Joseph is a mere carpenter. Not, not that being a carpenter is a bad thing. Uh, you know, I admire a lot of people who are in that business. But the fact is, in Matthew chapter 13, verse 55, Joseph is described as a simple carpenter. And that's oftentimes how we think of him. So we see the presentation of God's design. Let's, let's read further now. Here we go, verse 28. And having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice! Now remember I told you last time, when an angel of God shows up, sometimes in Jewish culture, that meant you're in trouble. God was going to judge you. Something's going wrong. But, but and two, the, the, the appearance of a, of a being, even though they're in the shape of a human, but the glory of God emanating from them, you know when they show up. That that's something glorious. And so Zacharias, we're told over earlier in chapter 1, Zacharias saw the angel standing there. In verse 12 it says, when he saw him, he was troubled and, and fear fell upon him. Daniel chapter 8 says, when Gabriel showed up to Daniel, he just plumb fainted, passed out. I give Mary a lot of credit for a teenage girl. She's holding her own pretty good, though it is a disturbing event. Even though he says to her, rejoice, highly favored one. Let's dissect that a little bit because it is a glorious statement to somebody. Gabriel wants Mary to know right away, look Mary, in God's eyes, you're special. Be happy because God is bestowing upon you his grace. Not so much his saving grace because that would come through her son Jesus. But at that moment, of all the women, Mary, God is extending to you grace. Why is that important? Because some of our Catholic friends would try to have you believe that Mary is, is more than a receiver of grace. She's a dispenser of grace. And, and, and folks, brothers and sisters, Mary is just an ordinary human woman who was blessed by God to receive the grace of God to hear this good news and the awesome plan that God had for her. But she was not, look, it says, you're highly favored one. The Lord is with you. That's a great thing. Blessed are you among women. Now, some people have tried to venerate uh, Mary and to, to make her deity. As if she is in a position of intercession between man and God. Folks, that's not the case. The angel didn't say, Mary, you are above women. 
Mary says, uh, or the angel says, you are blessed among women, recognizing her ordinary humanity. And so, you know, Gabriel has a wonderful message, but you got to read specifically what he's saying to her. In verse 29, but when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and considered what manner of greeting this was. That's legitimate. Then the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God twice, making it clear to her that she was a recipient of God's wonderful grace. And verse 31, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. You know, in Matthew chapter 1, if you're reading the rendition of this account, you know, Joseph has found out that his wife that he's betrothed to is now pregnant. He knows, she knows, it's not his. And in that Jewish uh, culture, he understood that the law allowed him to have her stoned. I mean, it was a capital punishment to commit adultery in a time of betrothment or marriage. Or he could just divorce her. And Joseph is contemplating this in his mind. He loved her. And, and you see the character of Joseph come out there in chapter 1 of Matthew. But anyway, he, as he was sleeping and contemplating this, it says that in verse 20 of chapter 1 of Matthew, But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord didn't say Gabriel, could have been, appeared to him in a dream. Saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife. For that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. What, what the angel is saying to Mary is exactly consistent to what the angel says to Joseph. There's no mix-up in the story. This is God's divine design. And, and the angel Gabriel is telling it to these individuals just like God is speaking through him. And it says, this is how it's going to happen. And you will name him Jesus. Mary, you will name him Jesus. Joseph, you will name him Jesus. In Hebrew, that would have been the name Yahshua. Yahweh is our salvation. Don't miss the significance of the name. I don't know if you've ever done any etymology studies of your name, what it really means. It's interesting to hear, you know. But uh, just for your record, uh, Charles means manly. Didn't surprise me, but there you go. It's just the way it is. I have to live under the curse. But anyway, Jesus, Yahweh, is your salvation. Get this. When the time comes to sign the birth certificate, make sure his name is Jesus. Don't name him after Joseph. Don't even name him after David. Because this baby that you are going to have is the Son of God. If he was I am in the beginning, he will be I am the day that you conceive him. And his purpose will be to save the people from their sins. Wow. What a powerful moment. I got to hurry up and wrap up this part anyway. He, he, verse 32. He will be great and will be called the son of the highest. 
And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. Fulfillment of prophecy in the Davidic covenant. Verse 33. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom there will be no end. In fulfillment of the prophecy. Just like God has told over and over and over. He will sit on the throne. He will reign victorious over all of creation. Not just Nazareth. Not just Galilee. Not just Israel. Not just the Middle East. But the whole world. But not not just the world, every planet, not just every planet, but all of heaven he will reign. Mary. You can imagine as the angel is unfolding all of this, she's trying to absorb it in her little adolescent mind. She's trying to process, you know, just a, an average birth would be enough to stagger the mind of a, a young woman. But imagine hearing this about your promised baby. And so Mary asked in verse 34, a reasonable question. Mary said to an angel, How can this be, since I do not know a man? Oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Didn't Zacharias make a terrible mistake just a few verses back when he says, How will I know this? <laughs> There's a difference. There was an element of doubt in Zacharias' question to Gabriel as if, What you're saying really sounds good. But how, how can I know this is really going to happen? I mean, I'm old. My wife is very old. And you talking about us having a baby? Now imagine Mary. She dares to ask a question. And I'm gasping. Oh, Mary, do you dare? You, you might not be able to talk. <laughs> but see, Mary's question is not one of doubt. There's no element of the fact that she didn't believe what the angel was telling her. She was asking a question that I dare say any reasonable minded teenage girl who has not had relations with a man who's just finding out that she's going to have a baby who is going to be the son of God. She's simply wanting to know Help me to understand. And you know, God is so good. He knew she was going to ask the question. And he had already prompted the angel, Gabriel, in verse 35. An angel said, or answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore, also, that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Mary, you can't understand fully what God's going to do. But take my word, it's the work of the Spirit of God that will do supernaturally in your womb. That which has never happened, that which will never happen again. But God's going to do it. And then as to if to reinforce her faith, to encourage her. In verse 36, the angel Gabriel goes on and says, Now indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, huh? She's maybe a distant cousin. Y'all got a lot of distant cousins? Some that are second, third, fourth, twenty-fifth, okay? You may never hear from them unless you win the lottery. Okay. Verse 36, and you shouldn't be playing the lottery anyway. Verse 36, now indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age. 
And this is now the sixth month for her who was called barren. Look what he says in verse 37. Mary, this thing that you think is impossible that could happen in you, I mean, it just doesn't seem reasonable, says, sure, it's hard to understand. But listen, look, God's already made your cousin Elizabeth, who's on up there in age, she's already pregnant six months into it. And God has done that, Mary? He can do what he's described to you. Verse 37. For with God, nothing will be impossible. Folks, remember that. That's straight from the throne of God. That is from the lips of a messenger who stood in the very presence of the Shekinah glory of God. Who looked face to face to God. And he's saying to this young Jewish girl, Mary. With God, nothing is impossible. And if it's good enough for Mary, if that promise is good enough for Mary, brothers and sisters, it's good enough for you and me. We face unsurmountable difficulties and sometimes hurdles that seem too high to clear or problems that seem unsolvable. But let me tell you something. If you're standing in faith with God and God intends to work through your life, He can do anything. Amen? Even in the virgin birth. I love Mary's humble response in verse 38. Then Mary said, Behold the maidservant of the Lord. Let it be according to your word. And the angel departed from her. She had heard the most spectacular news that any person could ever hear. And she believed it. And God was about to unfold events that she couldn't even imagine in the days, weeks, and months to come. The theme of our Gospel of Luke series is simply the command of Mary's baby, the Son of God. And that is, follow me. As we unfold from the teachings of the Scriptures in Luke's Gospel, Jesus came into the world on a mission. It was to call people to God. To call those who would put their faith and trust in Him to follow Him. And the challenge that I hopefully will present to you every time I preach through this gospel is a challenge of the question, are you following Jesus Christ? Are you truly a disciple of the Lord? Folks, I'll explain later. But this is, everything hinges on that. It's not enough to simply say that you know about Jesus. It's not enough to be simply affiliated with Jesus through a church or ministry. Listen, Jesus has said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but those who know and do the will of God. And the people who are doing that, who know God's will and do God's will, are disciples who have consciously and earnestly said by faith to Jesus, I'll follow you. Wherever you lead, I'll follow you.